Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House, who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we're joined by Stephanie Shrirock, president of Emily's List and the author of the new book, Run to Win. But before we get to that, We want to talk about the exciting results coming out of the Georgia election so far, as well as the simultaneous ongoing efforts to delegitimize a free and fair election that's currently going on at the Capitol. Just so everyone knows, for context, we're recording Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific as this is all unfolding. So let's jump right into what's going on as of now. You guys, I cannot believe that I am watching images of terrorists, truly, like domestic terrorists storming the Capitol, trying to delegitimize a free and fair election. So at this point, we have had multiple court battles in which the Republicans and President Trump have had to show proof of any fraudulent votes, and they have failed. And so instead of doing what is fair and free in the democracy and rightfully stepping away from power, President Trump addressed supporters today who are now storming the Capitol. It's insane to me that we could watch someone, President Trump, rally this group of supporters. And we call them supporters, but to your point, Joanna, really domestic terrorists that have been burning Black Lives Matter signs, that have been attacking people on the streets, and now they are attacking. They are breaching security at the Capitol, at our nation's Capitol. And in any other situation, in any other circumstance, if they were of any other color, is what I will say. This would be a completely different situation. But because they are coming to the Capitol and because they are presenting in a way that shows red, white, and blue as if they are true patriots, they are not patriots. This is the worst sort of activism, truly. And they're enjoying the support and protection at the highest level from the president, but also, you know, we just watched Ted Cruz take the floor and call for establishing an electoral commission in order to protect the integrity of our elections. So the juxtaposition of that going on outside the Capitol and Ted Cruz basically galvanizing from inside is completely alarming. You know, he said that 39% of Americans think the presidential election was rigged. And using that as the proof for why this commission should be formed when he and people like him were the ones who led folks to believe that the election was rigged, just shows the circular reasoning that's going on right now and why it's so dangerous. Well, and you guys, we now have DC police asking for help trying to get this situation under control. Like, this is insane. And my frustration is the news media should not call them Trump protesters. We should call them what they are, which is domestic terrorists. They created this context by which they are now literally inspiring people to breach our capital security. And I agree. This historically This has consequences. And so we are at a fragile moment as a democracy. And so to see people who are elected, state senators, stand on the side of it's it's actually not that many domestic terrorists who are there instead of the many millions of people who voted for this government is sickening. And it's like, 
I don't know about you guys, but I just feel like this is a week of highs and lows already because I was on such a high when I posted the photo of the little RBG Descent color earrings before we were going to record about Georgia results, which are so promising. Yes, let's talk about that, please. Let's talk about one of the highs for a second, because again, as we're recording right now, we have Reverend Warnock's win having been certified, which is so exciting. And his backstory and the context, I mean, just what an incredible day for this country. We're still waiting on the results for Asif's race, but it's looking really good. Yeah, I, I last night when I was just like looking with optimism at the results, I had tears come down my face because I thought, oh, my God, you guys, if we actually do get the Senate, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a huge fight. But there's a chance at health care reform where actually every American could have health care, which we're still not there yet. Well, not only is it health care reform, we're talking about confirmation hearings, the process of government being that much smoother because people who actually represent us are going to be in office now. And what an incredible opportunity for this incoming Biden-Harris administration. It is looking really positive. And I don't know how you could wake up this morning and not feel hopeful and not feel a level of joy. And before we even jump into that, I just want to really credit Black voters and Black organizers and to Stacey Abrams and to all of the Black women who stepped out. People will say this is the epitome of Black girl magic, but truly it is so much more than that. This is the epitome of what it means to organize, to work your butts off, to get out and dig into the labor that it takes to turn out voters the way that they did. And this is a sign of the power of the black vote, I think, when we look at Georgia having what the third largest African American population in the country, they turned out an electorate that was 80% of what happened in the presidential election. That is incredible and unheard of and monumental. And I'm just so proud of the women behind these movements. It is not magic. This is complete dedication to this effort. And I'm, I'm in awe. What women and men. And you know, what was impressive, I know we have all been emailing with Fair Fight Action and throughout this, but um, what was impressive to me is we were just emailing with them about different coalitions. They have created an incredibly inclusive coalition. I mean, Darian Alejandra, when I was looking through like the Asian American Advocacy Fund, the Latinx Georgia director, you know, all of these people who have been involved, they really created energy in different constituencies, motivated them and reached them where they were. I mean, I've been reading some of the ways that they motivated young people through Tinder. And I was like, seriously, I love this. (laughs) Yes, democracy and love. We're so indebted to everyone in Georgia. And Stacey Abrams deserves all of the flowers and kudos that she's getting, as well as all the organizers who've worked alongside of her for years in order to get us to this moment. Talking about people who represent us at our nation's capital, one of the women who has done so much to ensure that we as women are represented there is our next guest, who's Stephanie Schrierock. She is the president of Emily's List, and she's really been on the front lines of making sure that women have their voices heard. So let's get right to her. 
We are joined today by Stephanie Shriok, president of Emily's List since 2010. Under Stephanie's leadership, Emily's List has seen unprecedented growth, helped elect record numbers of women to the House and Senate, and recruited and trained thousands of pro-choice Democratic women to run for office. Emily's List is now more than 5 million members strong. Welcome to Pot as a Woman, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's such an honor. Well, we are so glad to have you here. And what we've seen in this most recent election cycle is women have shown up in a huge way from fundraising and getting people to the polls to actually running for office themselves. Why is this moment so important for women to get involved? Well, and I don't think it's just a moment. I mean, it is time for every woman to find her power and use her voice to make change in her community. Uh, And running for office is one of, and just one of the ways to do that. And the good news here is we've seen this growth happen since Mm -hmm. the 2016 election. And so I don't even think it's a moment. It is a sea change in this culture where women are rising up using their voices to make change in any way they can. And I don't think we're going to see this slow down. In fact, I think it's speeding up every single day. Yeah, not a moment, but a movement, really. So how do women stay involved and get prepared for the next big movement? I was like, keep on going. Yeah. I mean, the one thing about change is that it does not come easy and it kind of ebbs and flows and And that means for all of us, we got to take care of ourselves and take Mm -hmm. care of each other and build, build our network. I talk about that in the book that you don't do this alone. Mm -hmm. This is, this is not, you know, change making, whether it's running for office or, or doing what you're doing and bringing women leaders on to have conversations and doing that in community uh, with your listeners, uh, you know, working as a volunteer, you know, even, you know, donating money. All of those things are just bits and pieces of, of this, but we got to take care of each other and you mm. need backup. You can't do this by yourself. I mean, I, you know, I'm just writing uh, run to win. I, we were joking ahead of the start of this is that Christina Reynolds, the fabulous Christina Reynolds is my co-author and there wouldn't have been a book without Christina. I'm telling you, <laughs> like, right. she's phenomenal. And that's because it, it doesn't, I mean, first off, it's not as much fun to do it by yourself anyway. I mean, let's just face it. It's just more fun when you're with a group of like badass women who want to be making change. Um, But it also just makes everything go go better and you get more done. And that's what we're going to keep on doing. And you just keep on building out that network and that community and it becomes a family. And then it's just what you do. You know, I experienced everything that you're saying firsthand when I ran for Congress in 2017. And like many women who are running for office right now, I was a first time candidate that was basically building the plane while flying it. And so I want to take advantage of this moment of having you with us today to learn some of the practical tips that you have for women who are planning to run for office, but again, may not know how to navigate the right way to do it. Well, Ali, I, I just want to say thank you for running. Uh, the one, the one thing we say at Emily's List always is that you know, one of the truly bravest things you can do, the most courageous thing you can do in a democracy, is put your name on the ballot, and it is for the rest of us <laughs> to mm-hmm. back up uh, those brave women and men who are willing to do that. So I want to just a big thank you um, for putting your name on the ballot. Uh, because it is, it's not easy. It's not rocket science. You know, it's not like the most complicated thing in the world, but it's putting yourself out there. It's putting your family out there. uh, And 
And again, you just, you can't do that alone. And so when you start, you know, for a long time, uh, women weren't even really ready to take the first step, which is the saying, yes, <laughs> like, yes, I'm going to run, mm-hmm. you know, at Emily's List, uh, an organization that I've, I've been proud, proud to be running for almost 11 years now, but we're 35 years old and really got started because women weren't stepping up, but we weren't in a culture that 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 was even part of the conversation. And it was a rarity when women ran, it was an oddity. It was like, oh, it's like going to see a crazy zoo animal, like a woman's running for office, you know what I mean? I mean, it was like such a, so unusual. And so to, to change even the mindset of women, let alone men accepting women running, uh, just took time and more time. And I think it's still taking time. If it wasn't an issue, we'd have a woman president by now. So the, the first obstacle, of course, is the yes. And the good news is I've seen in my tenure, a huge cultural shift in women st- taking that, that first step and saying yes. Then you got to start putting all the pieces together. And I just mm-hmm. think of it as a puzzle. It's like, you just got to put the puzzle together We've got the pieces. The pieces are not complicated. You got to think about your story. And we talk about that uh, in the book is, you know, what is your story? Here's the thing. All of us have a story. I don't even want anyone listening to ponder that they don't have a story. Everybody has a story, period. And your story is relatable to so many people in your community who are living the same lives you're living and to figure out how to tell your story, to get comfortable about telling your story. And for women, that's another obstacle. A lot of times is talking about yourself and and sharing that, but we really walk through that process and then connecting with the voter and then ultimately the constituent I mean, that's what this is all ultimately about is connections. Mm-hmm. And so that the way to connect, and it's not just new, it's been going on since, since there were humans on this planet is storytelling, whether it was in language or in pictures, it's been storytelling. And that's a big piece of it. Then the tactics of it will start putting together. You need, to, you need to learn how to fundraise. We'll teach you how to fundraise. You know, you need to learn what to say at the doors when you ask for a vote. Okay, we can do that. We can practice that. That's, that's not that hard. You need to find some staff. There's a lot of great people who are ready to work on campaigns right now and even more women who are willing to volunteer. So th- those are the, the pieces of the puzzles you just got to put together. And we know those pieces. We can do that uh, and we can help. Let's go back to the fundraising part of it for a second because I know that money I love really. It. So everybody goes, I'm like, FOMO. oh no, well, I have you to know, fundraise. I we, know. We it's know okay. a, I can attest to how painful those phone calls are, but it, it also is just obviously seen as such a barometer of viability. And especially for women, you know, when we're trying to figure out what we need to raise to be competitive and to be seen as competitive against perhaps more traditional candidates, what is the fundraising uh, number that we have to hit? Yeah, and I don't think there's no, I, there's not a magic number. And, and I know that's like, I wish I could tell you there's a magic number. First off, having an understanding of what an individual campaign uh, costs is a good way to get started. 
uh, and writing out a budget, whether it's you or somebody who's working with you to write out a budget of how much a race can cost. A city council race in a small town is less expensive than a city council race in New York City. Mm -hmm. A congressional race in California is about the same price as a state Senate race in California, which is all significantly higher than a congressional race in say Montana, you know, so (laughs) you have to do a little bit of research to figure out, you know, what does a typical campaign winning campaign, don't look at the losing ones, like (laughs) what's a typical (laughs) winning campaign? Because we're gonna win, we're going into this to win uh, cost and then um, back it out from there. Uh, just to have an understanding of it, you know, but at the end of the day, you don't have to outraise your opponent. You don't have to outspend your opponent. I know there's a lot of pressure, particularly at the higher offices, the federal offices, you just ran for Congress, uh, the Senate races, the gubernatorial races, like who's got the most money they're going to win. That's not, that's actually not always the case. And often it's not the case. You have to have enough money to communicate your message to the number of voters you need to win. It's just, it's sort of a math problem. (laughs) This isn't like, it's a math problem. And that's what you need to do. And that's what you need to think about. And if you can't, uh, for women in particular, where let's face it, uh, we're starting off not making as much as our male colleagues. The first group of people you go to to fundraise are your friends probably more girlfriends than, but maybe not. Maybe you got a lot. I got both, but I got a lot of girlfriends and guess what? They probably don't make as much as their male counterparts. And so you already start. And then let's just be, let's be honest here. I'm a white woman and my, and I've got a larger white community, which means they make more money than my African-American sisters and my Latina friends. I mean, this, so we know that we're already starting down then we have to build out from there. Uh, but we can make up for it in volunteers and activism and door knocks and other means. And that's just what we have to do. Well, and building that community. I mean, you talked about it really like Christina Reynolds, you mentioned your co-author who of course we all worked with in the Obama White House. She's fantastic. And it is, it's about finding those allies, men and women, who are going to help you. You know, it it dawned on me when I was uh, looking at Run to Win that this book is going to come out right around the time that we are going to see the first female vice president sworn into office. And that is pretty substantial because I know I talked to Pat Schroeder, who was a congresswoman. I love Pat Schroeder. I Don't love you love her? Pat Schroeder. I'm like, I'm from Montana. So like I have a Western, like cause she's from Colorado. And I'm like, oh, Pat Schroeder is amazing. Well, and she she talked about when they tried to swear her husband into Congress. Yeah. And so it is not that far from that moment that we have a female vice president, which is sub- substantial progress. So we can make progress. But, you know, Vice President-elect Harris writes in the foreword of the book, if I had listened to what people told me was not possible, I wouldn't be where I am today. And then you write, stop listening to the doubters, even when you are one of those doubters. And I felt that 
Like yeah. I am my own worst enemy sometimes. Oh. I'm the one who stops myself. And so I wanted to know from you, is self-doubt the biggest barrier you see to women, you know, getting to that point? Or what is this biggest barrier that women need to overcome to get to the point where we have a female president of the United States of America? Well, I don't think there is one. Um, and it might be bigger for some than, you know, which you know, every, every woman is not the same. I think that's the other thing we have to start thinking about. Like, we're not all the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what I loved about this presidential primary is that we saw these women who are running who are totally different kinds of leadership, totally different kinds of women. Uh, but self, self-doubt sneaks in on you and it sneaks in on you fast. And that's why, you know, we talk about this in Run to Win is that having that network around you that you can pick up the phone and, and talk it out. Uh, and think it through with somebody. And sometimes you need to have your truth teller who's going to call you out on it. Or, you, or, or sometimes you need somebody who's going to just talk you out of that self-doubt. Uh, but that's, you got to go in believing. And if you just keep on uh, believing, I know sometimes that just sounds so simple and so naive, but that is really true. Uh, it's sort of the, if you build it, they will come <laughs> model of, yeah. of all of this. Uh, but so many women in particular and women of color definitely uh, are told that this isn't their path and there isn't a place and, it, and maybe they're not told so directly, but the culture is telling them in a million different ways that their place isn't at this decision-making table. And it's just not true. And in fact, it's damaging. It's damaging to society to not have an equal number of women and men sitting at our decision-making tables. Or like I'd like to say, we could make up for lost time. We could go with the <laughs> late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg rule and there'll be enough when there are nine. <laughs> <laughs> that's our podcast uh, <laughs> that's the podcast model all women all women all the time let's just, let's just do this um uh, it is about but i would argue it's really about perspectives and and so i'm just saying to to women across this country i don't care if you run for office or you're going for that promotion at your at your job you're trying to become an executive at a company, you are going to be a partner at the law firm, or you're just going for a higher salary, you need more money uh, at the diner. I don't care what you're doing. You got to ask, just like you got to fundraise, you got to make the ask, Uh, you got to push away those doubts because you deserve it. Yeah. Not only do you deserve it, your family, your community, and our culture, our entire society need you to do even better than you're doing now. That's why you got to do it. Well, and it's an interesting thing of, you know, like you write, the patriarchy won't topple itself. And it is actually really hard work, right, when these women get elected. And I mean, I think all the time about how my student government was about equal, right? We had a number of women and we had a number of men. And and a lot of those women who were involved in student government have not gotten involved in politics. And I'll be honest, I wanted to run away from politics when I left the White House. I had my son in the White House. I was uh, he was three. I wanted to take care of him. I was so tired of the toxic masculine energy that was around me all the time. It was like, you know, you're infighting all the time. That's what politics is. 
how do women, you know, how do we keep our integrity and how do we get to a point where, you know, you're surrounded by people? Because I'm thinking even AOC said recently that she was thinking about walking away. How do we keep women at it? And we're back to, you know, think, thankfully AOC has a squad, you know, and, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, and I think about sort of the, the other group of women, you know, Slotkin, Spamberger, they, they got, they got the badasses as they refer to themselves, which I just love. And uh, we have to keep going. We have mm-hmm. to keep going. doesn't mean we shouldn't take a break. It doesn't mean, Hey, you, you did your public service at the white house and now you're going to take a break for a bit. You're still a citizen of this country. You're still voting. You're doing the pocket. You're doing all this other stuff. It's just a different kind of version of politics. But if we want to change the, that, that energy, that negative energy, you felt like you were getting stewed in, right? That misogyny Mm -hmm. and that masculinity that exists in American society, a society that is built on the concept of a, of a knight in shining armor or a big old cowboy with a cowboy hat, right? You think of all of the images that are defined as America. Uh, If we wanna break through that, it means we gotta get at the decision-making tables. And we've gotta, we've gotta keep getting more and more and more women in the rooms because that's how society is. I mean, we are, in essence, actually there's more women than men according to the census. So like, if you, so let's just be, you want that balance because too much, frankly, I would argue of one, one side or the other is probably not exactly what we want. And if you want anything to tilt, you want, you want more women because they're more willing to sit down and, and just change the way things are done by bringing more voices in by not having as much infight. I'm not saying there isn't fighting. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be that. And I'm like, but there is a desire to get to the core of the problem and fix the problem. And there's not a lot of patience by elected women in particular to play the game. And you know why? Because they usually got kids at home mm-hmm. and they have to go home and mm-hmm. go do other stuff. Like, I think they're like, why is it so different for women? It's because they don't have just one job. Yes. Like, I, I just, I think about Kirsten Gilbert all the time. Like, she's, she's got to go home and have dinner with the kids. And I'm not saying some of the men, and they've gotten better, but the men from 40 years ago weren't going home to, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is changing. And why do you think it is that men are going home now to have dinner with their families when they're in Congress? because there's been enough women in the workplace to change that environment. See, that didn't just happen. It happened because women were there and that's what we got to keep going. And we will break down this patriarchy and it will be a better society for it. It just is going to take a lot of us to continue that path. We just got to continue. Change is not as fast as we like, but we are changing.
You bring up a really good point about the squad and the power that that support system has for women. And, you know, we've had Tina Chen and Valerie Jarrett on the podcast talking about efforts to defend women against a lot of the misogynistic attacks, sexist attacks that they are facing in today's political landscape. How much does Emily's List see it as a part of their mission to stand up and defend female politicians? Uh, it's, It's what we do every day. You know, I, you know, poor Christina Reynolds and her team, it's, it's sometimes like whack-a-mole, like, oh, well, who is it today? Who said what today? How did they, how did they present this in the paper today? And the, in the, you know, in this tweet and this, that, you know, it's, it comes from, it comes from a culture where we're all stewed in misogyny and we don't always mm-hmm. recognize even sometimes how we're presenting something because we're so stewed in it. And that's, um, that's so hard because you're like, oh, you know, even if you're talking to some of our our great, you know, women who are writing will will present our candidates in a light that's very gendered, and they won't even necessarily know until we kind of put a light on it and they're like oh oh geez like it's just like all of a sudden like oh, you're right I shouldn't be talking about her like that uh, and that really uh, is part of the education process and I was just both both Christine and I were thrilled to be uh, working so closely with Tina Chen and Valerie Jarrett and and a whole fabulous group of women as Kamala Harris became the vice presidential nominee uh, and everything that came after, because we knew, we knew that there's a whole nother level of gendered and in, in uh, then Senator Harris, now Vice President-elect Harris's case, um, racial attacks that are, um, <laughs> that are just despicable and need extra tending. And they, we need to be intentional about that work. Uh, we did it during the presidential primary uh, for all of the women, and we'll continue doing it uh, for the soon-to-be vice president. Uh, but it is something we we have to have to do. Now, here's the thing: I don't want I don't want anybody listening thinking, "Well, I don't want like this isn't worth it." It it's okay. It's not a huge group of folks that are bringing this out, and you've got more people like Emily's List and, and podcasts and reporters who have a better understanding of how to present women candidates, not perfect, still working on it, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's getting, we're in a better place and it will continue getting better when we have more women in all of those places, running, elected, in, in those editorial rooms, as producers, you know, it, it's all the way up in every aspect. You know, as we are speaking to the work that you and Christina and Valerie and Tina have done to defend women, what's the role that men play in this? Oh, well, we, we need them with us. We need them with us. I mean, we can't, it's like, yeah. right? I mean, we can't do this alone. We shouldn't right. have to do And we shouldn't have to do it alone. Uh, and just like the Black Lives Matter movement shouldn't have to do it alone. No one should have to do it alone. Uh, but we understand that we have a particular special role uh, in, in doing this work because we see it and feel it differently uh, because, of, because of a gender difference. And thankfully, there are more and more men who are open and understanding of 
of these changes and of society changes, uh, mm-hmm. which is which is great. I mean, just really basically, and it's, I, you know, I say all that though is I also am really well aware that the toxicity of someone like Donald Trump being in the White House for four years can send us back by decades. I, mm-hmm. I, and I worry that we are at this moment, you can just, you can almost feel it. Like we're going to push through or we're going to fall way back. Right. And we're just right there, right? We're just right. If you can just feel it like back and forth, are we going to break through? You know, I think we're going to break through because I've never, I've never seen the energy uh, of women like this. Now, granted, I haven't been around for 200 years. And so I didn't see the suffrage, but I wasn't there to watch that. But, but I, I will say this is really something. Um, Emily's List has had over 60,000, six zero, 60,000 women wow. say, I want to run for office. That, we, we spent 30 years begging women to run. Now they're like, come in. <laughs> it's like, it's like an army of women who are coming to run. And that, that's not going to change. No, that's not going to change. So we just got to keep pushing. Well, as we look at the difference between the two parties and the women that are running in each of these parties, one of the narratives that we've noticed um, in party politics is that the Republican Party really protects their own, despite all the gaffes and flaws and mistakes their candidate might make they tend to gravitate towards protection of their candidates. Why do you think there's that difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in that sense? Or do you see that? That is such a good question. And I don't know if I've quite thought about it like that. Um, my, my working theory has always been that the, the party challenges, the part you know, on each party is you know, who's going to get through the primary, mm-hmm. you know, because once the candidate is the candidate, once the candidate's on the general election, I have this, and my staff loves when I say this, I'm like, you have to win a primary before you get to win a general, <laughs> which That's right. I know is a simple thing to say, but it is true. Yeah. <laughs> In its simplicity, that is the way the world works. And the question is, how do you get through that primary? And is the party going to back you up or not? Now, after 35 years of Emily's List being a constant push on the Democratic Party at all levels, I can now proudly say that the party is pretty solidly supportive of the general election nominees, um, women or men, like, because once you're the general election, you're the candidate. And they got to put everything around because it's about numbers at the end of the day. And that that's been the case. And they're way more open to our recruitment of women in primaries and also more accepting. There's grumbling, but there's there's always grumbling around primaries. Um, But there's but there's more acceptance that there's going to be primaries. And then it's our job, like Emily's list, to get those women through primaries. And part of the Republican party's problem for a long time. And we'll see if we have a change here or if we have an anomaly. I don't know the answer. I don't think we know the answer yet. Uh, They haven't had an entity like Emily's List on the Republican side pushing about the importance of women's leadership. Uh, In fact, they discount 
that as identity politics and so it doesn't matter it's like well no it's actually about people and you don't have you're missing i don't know 52 percent of the population in your party at the moment in the elected office particularly last year when there are only 13 republican women in the united states house of Representatives. 13 but that's it <laughs> that's terrible when emily when emily's list started in 85 they had 11 republican women just to give you a set they're going nowhere they're going nowhere. Uh, and part of it is like they weren't getting through. They weren't running as much. First off, there's not as many Republican women, period. There's just way, 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 way more Democratic women than Republican women out there. There's just the way of, the, again, math. Uh, and when the Republican women were running, uh, they weren't getting the support in the primaries from any entity to get them through. We spend a lot of money on Emily's list to get women through. And it's not always dollars. It's coaching speech coaching, media training, helping you find staff, just being there in the evenings when you were asked one more time, what are you going to do with your kids if you get elected, right? I mean, these this were there to be there and there was no support there. In this last election, we saw an increase of Republican women getting through primaries. And then ultimately the Republican party stood by those general election candidates because it's about numbers. And they went from 13 to 28 uh, women in the United States House of Representatives, which honestly, I'm, I'm thrilled. That's a, that is a good thing, but like it's one year. Let, let's see if this continues. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know. Yeah. They, I, I think that the party in general, once you know, once they're the general election candidates, you're usually pretty good about standing by them. Well, we definitely um, saw a lot usually. of people stand behind Donald Trump, even though they had been, you know, working against him. And certainly he has inspired a lot of women to get involved in the process, which I would say is a good thing. But it's interesting to me that we still give him oxygen and we still reward this bad behavior. And to me, I wonder, how do we break that cycle? And how do we get to a world where, okay, we have been inspired by this toxic energy on center stage, but let's move forward together and let's try to finally make this world a little closer to the world as it should be. And I, it's interesting that you, you bring it up like that. Cause I have, I've watched this evolve in a really interesting way. Cause it definitely was the first catalyst for sure. Um, when we, you know, and I bet all of you, if you could marched the day after his inauguration, wherever you were living at the time, uh, back in 2017. And there was this amazing movement of women. Uh, and that's when we started seeing at Emily's list, the, thousands and then tens of thousands of women who wanted to run. Uh, the first push of that was him. But then, but then it was, hey, we're winning. So the next, like, so we would watch at Emily's List when we'd have a big surge of women come in and say they wanted to run. And after the first, which was the Trump um, election, uh, victory, which is so hard to say. Uh, the, the next one was saving the Affordable Care Act. When we won that battle, and what people forget in the summer of 17, we saw a huge surge. And then in uh, November of 17, when the Virginia state elections happened, and out of what felt like the blue, all of these women who most of, you know, were, they were all of our candidates, 
uh, picked up these House of Delegates seats. So these are just like, these are state reps, basically, um, or entirely. And they won another huge surge. All of a sudden, women were seeing that they were winning, and then they were seeing what they could do. And so I say this is that there's the evolution of oh my gosh, we actually do have power and voice. And when we get there, we get to make big change and we get to fight for reproductive justice and childcare and climate change uh, action that we need so desperately and gun safety. And, and I think about Lucy McBath, who uh, is now a Congresswoman from Georgia, who unfortunately lost her son uh, in, in gun violence wasn't even, I mean, she was running for the state house before she's like, wait a second, why don't I just run for Congress here? Uh, because I can make change. And then she got, you know, helped it. Now we got it, we got to change more, but she helped get that bill passed through the house. People, women are seeing that they get, they're getting it done and that's happening. And I don't think that's changing. I think that's where we're seeing this power grow rapidly. You know, I was one of those women you were talking about because Trump had just been elected and the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act is why I decided to run. And in closing, I'm curious if you, what do you foresee as the next surge that's going to motivate women? It's a good question. I mean, we've got so much at stake right now. And I, I think that um, we, we've got to get through this pandemic. Healthcare is at the top of everybody's minds. Uh, we've got women who are really strong. I know we've got some moms. I, I don't have children myself, oh, yeah. but I know we got some moms on this call. And you I'm going to get, I heard a little one at the beginning of oh, yeah. the yeah. Mine for sure. That's mine for sure. <laughs> and so the challenges that women are facing, families, but women in particular, right now, right now in having the kids at home? Are they, is there school or no school? What's the childcare situation? What's my job situation? Can I afford to work or not? If this is going to be the case for all, all of this is really coming to a head. And yeah. I think that the, this economic strain that is devastating so many of our American families uh, on the backs of women in particular, like this is this recession more so than anything is on the backs of women who then also have to be caregivers, often of two generations, children and parents, like this is all coming. And so my, my gut says like, this is going to be the next movement because it has to be. It has to be. I mean, we talk about needing an infrastructure bill in this country, and I agree. We absolutely should pass an infrastructure bill. You know what I think it should include? I think it should include roads and bridges, and I think it should include child care and paid leave and everything that we need for home care workers in this country because we do not treat our teachers and our home care workers and our on our essential. I love the term. We've made everybody essential, but we don't pay them anything. Yeah. Like, that's what we got. If that's the infrastructure of our country, well, why are we overlooking those folks? That's, yeah. you know, so we need both those things. And that's how I, we, I think, um, I think President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have such an opportunity if they can get a Congress that they can work with to really make some changes. And I think, I think women are really going to rally around this because they don't, they have, we have to. We have to. We have to. Yeah. Yeah, Her absolutely. book is Run to Win, 
pick it up. It's an amazing read. Stephanie Shriok, thank you so much for being with us today. It was an honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, the honor's mine. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, I loved talking to Stephanie, and I cannot wait for Run to Win to come out for all these women to run for office. If one woman felt motivated to run for office after that interview, that would be incredible. I certainly hope that someone out there listening was, because it was just such an incredible conversation. And I want to get over to our POTUS of the week, because I am personally so excited to say that it is Ashley Nicole Williams, who will serve as Deputy Director of Oval Office Operations to President-elect Joe Biden. She is the first black woman to hold that position, and she's going to be helping the incoming administration navigate the day-to-day operations of the Oval Office. During our time at the White House, which is where I met her, she was an intern, and then she quickly rose through the ranks to be a senior advisor to Dr. Jill Biden. She then went on to travel with the Biden campaign as their trip director, and in really incredible fashion, also earned her master's degree and law degree from two different universities while continuing to staff the president-elect. So we are just so excited for you, Ashley, and look forward to so many amazing things to come. And our shout out of the week goes to Shonda Rhimes, who executive produced the period piece Bridgerton, which is the first original Netflix show under the Shondaland banner. And if you haven't seen it, be sure to set aside eight hours of your day because you will have to binge it. It is so addictive. A friend of mine, Allison Equal, also produced the show. So another shout out to Allison. If you haven't seen it, this is the one you do not want to miss. Shout out Shonda Rhimes. Because we can get lost in a little bit of romance. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Spicy. And be sure to join us next week. We will be one week out from Inauguration Day and undoubtedly have a lot to talk about. See you then. Bye.